you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to uh, Acts chapter 10. We're going to look at verse uh, 34 today. Acts 10, verse 34. And let's go ahead and start with a word of prayer. Gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time you've given us to look at your word. And we take this opportunity to, to really get deeper into your word and to a relationship with you and in our faith. So help us in this time. Help us to put aside all the things that might be on our mind and, and just, uh, just turn to the truth that you have for our lives today. Let it impact us, let it change us, and let us grow accordingly. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, Easter, Resurrection Sunday is all about the victory that we have in Jesus. We sang that song this morning. It's one of my favorites. Uh, i got a lot of favorites, you know, but I, that's, that's among my favorites. Uh, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection is a very personal thing for each one of us. What he did there, he did for each one of us and had each one of us on his mind. I know that sounds impossible, but Jesus was able to do that. Jesus was able to think about every person that ever lived and ever existed. And in that moment, we were with him there upon the cross. Because the Bible says that he took all the sin upon himself and took it to the cross. I know that's impossible for us, but for Jesus, it was possible. And it happened. And so we want to look at the, the personal side of, of Jesus' resurrection, of Jesus' sacrifice of the cross and everything that Jesus did. And there is that personal side. But in order for us to fully grow, to have a balanced faith, we have to go beyond just what the resurrection did for us. It did a, it did a lot, and we need to celebrate that. But what else did Jesus' resurrection do? It's good for us to know that. Indirectly, it all comes back to how it saved us. Indirectly, it comes back on how it benefited us. But there are some other benefits that we sometimes overlook. And if we don't take the time to study the Word of God deeply, spiritually, we get tunnel vision. I don't know if anybody's ever dealt with tunnel vision before. I have not ever dealt with it, but we understand the term. The, the term of tunnel vision means that everything in your peripheral is gone. You don't see it. You only see right here. And mentally, this happens probably more than physically getting tunnel vision. As I thought about that for just a moment, uh, as, as we were looking at this sermon and, and I thought about getting beyond our, our, our that tunnel vision and into that peripheral, I remembered my dad, my stepfather, taking pilot's license uh, tests and exams when he was, when I was a kid. And he had some time there where he was just excited about doing that, and so that's what he wanted to do. One of the men in our church was a pilot, a small plane pilot. And so he he wanted to, to learn from him. He was also an instructor, so so he said, you know, just come up with me and, and, and try it out, see if you'd like it. So he did, and, and Dad got the bug, as he would always say, to fly. And so I learned from him a little bit as he 
was studying for that exam. And Jay probably knows a little bit of this stuff from his dad, the dad's a pilot. And I learned that there are two kinds of certification, two kinds of rules that you fly by. It doesn't matter what size plane you fly, you always fly by one of these two. It's VFR and IFR. Uh, visual flight rules and instrumental flight rules. And I remember that first you do your visual flight rules. What that means is, is you're flying a plane and you're able to see everything that's below you, everything that might be coming up on the horizon ahead of you, and fly according to that. Now, there, that's the first level. Once you get that level in there and you fly a certain number of hours to get your pilot's license, then you move to the IFR, which is a little bit more advanced, a little bit more difficult, because you have to fly according to the instruments of the plane only. It's very important to do that, because if you happen to get into some fog or you get into some clouds, you can't see the ground. And so you've got to learn... Uh, where, where to fly, and of course you use your maps to find that out and, and to navigate through that time. But there comes a point when you're, when you're being instructed to fly that you have to fly with a hood to get your IFR. And what that means is you put a helmet on and it completely blocks out all of your provisional vision. You can only look in front of you and the instrument panel. You look to the side, you can't get your head far enough to see out because they have the blinders there. And so you're restricted to fly according to the instruments on the plane. It keeps you tunnel visioned on the instruments. And that's great. It needs to happen. Because if you're flying in a plane and the pilot goes into some fog or goes into some clouds, you know they've got to change. They've got to change course. They've got to go up. I've been on a plane before. I'm sure you have too that you heard, hey, you know, we're going to have to rise above the clouds a little bit. We're going to be flying at X number of uh, feet. And all we'll have a cloud, we have a cloud canopy. We want to get up over that. And then it's been a cloudy kind of rainy day. And then you get above it and it's sunshine. Beautiful. It's great. Can't see the ground. They don't know where they're flying except by their instruments. So they've got to know that. However, although they're flying by the instruments, I don't want my pilot to sit there with a hood on and have tunnel vision the whole time. Because it's very possible that there is a flock of birds that will be coming along and they need to be prepared to see that flock of birds because that can cause some engine damage, that can cause some trouble to the plane or some damage elsewhere. And so it's very important that the pilot knows how to fly by the instruments, but you don't want them hooded. You don't want them tunnel-visioned all the time. Now, why do I say that? Well, because it's good for us to have that tunnel vision sometime to be able to look and focus in on what we need to know. But in our spiritual walk, we've got to get that peripheral view in there too. And so it is with our journey of faith. We've got to look beyond our own experience and get into the Word and learn what the Word says about our Lord and Savior. So let's go deeper into the Word of God and let's study to see what it says. Today we're going to do that with the resurrection. The first thing about Christ's resurrection is it emphasizes His deity. Something we know, but we've got to realize fully what this means. 
Jesus really put his credibility on the line with the resurrection. You see, because that was the ultimate proof that he was going to give that he was the Son of God. He said, tear, tear this building down and in three days, I'll build it up again. I'll rise up again. Now, the people that heard him say that didn't know what he was talking about. They thought he was talking about the temple. He referenced the temple, but it was the temple of his body that he was talking about. And so he was challenging them to say that in three days, I will prove that I am the Son of God because I will rise from the dead. And so that is exactly what it is. Now, you know, you might be able to fool some people and try to trick them into think, thinking that, hey, yeah, I was able to do this. You know, I love magic, and I see magicians do this all the time. They do a trick, and, and, and you can't believe what happens. One of my shows I've seen every one, a few episodes of is the Carbonaro Effect. I don't know if you've seen that or not. And, all, and uh, it's, it's kind of interesting because he gets people in these situations. He'll be at a store or at the mall, and he'll just do amazing things. And he's like, how in the world could he pull that off, you know? And like once he had a decoy, a uh, duck decoy, and he was putting it together and talking to somebody across the counter and all, and he shook it, and the duck flew away. It's like, how in the world does he do that, you know, kind of a thing. You can do that. You can trick people. But I don't think anybody could say, hey, I'm the son of God, and I'm going to die, and I'm going to come back to life, and you're going to know that I'm the son of God. Jesus did that. You're not going to die and trick someone unless you really can die and come back to life. Jesus was able to do it. And what's that mean? It means that we know without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And what he said is that he is equal to God in that sense. So he did put his reputation on the line. And put, uh, Peter is speaking to Cornelius and some other Gentiles at, at uh, Cornelius' home. He's talking about Christ. He's talking about the resurrection. Now notice here, these are people that lived during the time of Jesus. Jesus, of course, at this point, had been crucified a few years before. But his story and his renown is still traveling throughout the world and there are people that actually saw the miracles of Jesus there are people that actually saw him put on the cross and some that even seen him after he was risen to the tune of about five to six hundred people saw him after his resurrection alive so they had people, sources that they could go to and find out what the truth is and Peter's preaching here to people that could see that and you can tell that through the nature of what he's writing here. At any time, they could have spoken up and said, wait a minute, wait a minute, that's not right. I know so-and-so, they saw it, they were there, they know what happened. That didn't happen when Peter preached that day. This is what he says, then Peter began to speak, Acts 10, 34, following. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. You know, Peter had to go through a lesson here. He had to find out in a, in a difficult way that, that now under the new covenant things have changed. And if, I don't know if you remember or not the sheet that came down out of heaven and told him kill and eat. 
And he said, but God, these are unclean animals. He said, what I have made is not unclean. And by that, all the dietary laws of the Old Testament were severed. Because Christ said on the cross, it is finished. And so Peter was on this, this new journey himself, learning that I, as a Jew, can no longer say that, that this salvation is only for the Jews, but it's for the Gentiles too. So God put Peter in a situation to stretch him. I love the, I love the word favoritism. God does not show favoritism. You know what the word means? This is a whole other sermon in itself. The word favoritism in Greek that, that's used here and elsewhere in Acts means that God does not regard the face. Stop and think about that. When we look at someone's face, what do we see? How they're different than we are. How they might be the same that we are. You see, Peter says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, that God does not show, we could put in there, prejudice according to a person's face. It's the only thing it can really mean. God doesn't look on the face and judge us by the face, the way we look, the way we are, the, the malady we might have, the deformity we might have, the flaws we might have, or the color we might have. Verse 35 says, but, but accepts men from every nation. See, there we go. You see where the tie is in there? Every culture, every nation, Jesus Uh, accepts from every nation who fear him and do what is right. That's the only thing that matters is if you fear God and do what is right. You know the message God sent. Again, here, notice the, the language he's using. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ who is Lord of all. That was a fact. These Gentiles already knew that. It wasn't new, new news to them. Verse 37 says, You know what has happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached. You see, these people knew this. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. Once again, their knowledge, their experience. And how he went around during, uh, doing good and healing all those under the power of the devil because God was with him. We, and Peter speaking of himself and his apostles here, we are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem, and they killed him by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. I love that phrase. God caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen. And by us. Who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us, Jesus, commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. 
It's amazing. He is speaking to these people who were a part of the time living there that could have refuted anything that he said. And these are the claims that he made that were not refuted at the time. He said, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, confirmed that God was with him, uh, stated that he was killed by hanging on the cross, a tree, and that God raised him from the dead. Peter spoke from his own testimony and shared with him that he ate and he drank with Jesus after his resurrection. And he stated that Jesus commanded them, the apostles, to testify that he was the one appointed to God as judge over the living and the dead. All of those things he, he preached to these people and they did not deny it. Now why, why am I spending so much time on this? Because constantly we have people in our society today that try to say, well, Jesus may have been a good teacher, but that's all he was. He may have been a good man, but that's, that's it. We're under more and more attack all the time. So in, in the view of an investigation, we can, we can show these evidences to show this group of people did not refute what Peter is saying here. And they accepted it and did not refute it. So we have no tangible proof, true, that Jesus was who he, he said he was. But this passage, passage gives us... Uh, Tons of evidence to show that Jesus is the Son of God. And it was not denied by those who knew it best. Paul also refers to Jesus being our Lord and God when he writes uh, to the Romans. In Romans chapter 1, verses 2 and 4, if you want to turn 2 through 4. And he points out again that the resurrection being the thing that declared that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. Romans chapter 1, verse 2. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ the Lord. So here he makes reference to his humanity and to his deity. Both. First he says that Jesus uh, was a descendant of David by his human nature, by his lineage, on the basis of Mary in her line. And God, on the other hand, his deity came through the spirit of holiness and it was declared by power. What power? The power that raised Jesus from the dead. That Jesus Christ was our Lord. So again, Peter and John both attesting to that fact. In a court of law today, this uh, talked about in, in uh, one of the professors at, at Dallas Christian College asked this question of uh, Nathan Hecht who serves on the Supreme Court of Texas and all. And he said, he says, is it still true that two people make a fact just like it was in Scripture? He says, yes, in a court of law today, two people claiming the same thing makes a fact in a court of law. We have it. Two people, Peter and 
Paul. And all of the people there in Cornelius' house, all the people that saw him, 500 plus, 600 people, possibly, knowing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God without a shadow of a doubt. We know that. So it's good to know. So when someone comes up to you, you don't have to be shy. You don't have to back down. You, we have to know the reason for the faith that we profess according to the New Testament. That's a reason for the faith that we have. No, we don't need that proof, but some people, it'll help if we can just verbalize that to them. Another interesting and important aspect from Christ's resurrection is a transfer worship day from Saturday to Sunday. Have you ever thought about that before? Why is it that in Jesus' day and before, they worshiped on Saturday, the Sabbath, and now we worship on Sunday? A lot of times that's just something we take for granted. See, we get tunnel, uh, we get tunnel vision, just know, hey, we've always, always done that. I don't, I don't know. But it was the resurrection that caused that change to happen. Why? Because the early church began celebrating on the day that Jesus resurrected, which was the first day of the week. And we have this shown over and over. Two brief scriptures that we're going to look at today. Acts 27. We use this sometimes for, for our communion time. Not only does it show that we meet on, on Sunday, but it, it shows that it confirms the two things that we do in the worship service go back to the time of the apostles. So Acts 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. And that reference of breaking bread in this, in this context is that they were around the Lord's table. Paul spoke to the people. And because he intended to leave the next day, Kept on talking until midnight. I'm going to let you out a little bit earlier than midnight today. So, aren't you real glad? <laughs> so, don't, don't knock long sermons, you know. Paul, Paul preached till midnight. <laughs> but look, it says, on the first day of the week, we came together to hear Paul speak. No. Well, he was, a, he was an apostle. He was a great speaker. He, he wrote most of the New Testament. Yes, he, he's important. Not near as important as the Lord's Supper, though. We came together to break bread. So they gathered together on the first day of the week. Acts 20, verse 7. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2 is another one. So you just jot that down. Read it later if you need to. But uh, 1 Corinthians 16, 2 says, On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. You know, they had to be disciplined. Because he said on the first day of the week, set aside some money in keeping with your income. Their tithe was set aside. And then when someone came to make a collection that was brought to the church and then taken where it was needed. So here, part of our worship service, both the Lord's Supper and offering on the first day of the week, 2,000 years later plus, we're still doing it. We're, we're being consistent with the Word of God. And so we got to, that's because we're not being tunnel visioned in the Word. We're looking at the peripheral and know why things are being done the way they're being done. And the whole reason that the change was made was because there was a new covenant 
And the new covenant was brought about when Jesus was crucified on the cross and he said, it is finished. The law is complete. And now there is a new covenant because of Jesus' death on the cross and we have that new covenant and we worship on the day that Jesus rose from the dead. So now you have the reason if you didn't know that prior to. See, you've expanded to your peripheral vision spiritually. The next thing, the resurrection also marks the beginning of the lordship over the church of Christ. Uh, Ephesians 1, 19 through 23. It's pretty self-explanatory. It starts in the middle of a, of a sentence here. and says, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him on the right hand uh, in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now, I know that you're here today because you love the Lord. But there are times when, you know, it may be difficult to, to be here Sunday morning for church. Things come up. Things are here. I always think about it in this respect. Church is important. Because, you know, some people say, well, church isn't that important. It's not that important. Jesus died on the cross and he became the head of the church. If Jesus put his life on the line to save people and to bring them into the church, the body, the kingdom of God, then church is pretty important. And I need to be there to be a part to worship him. Mainly out of respect for what he has done for me. You know the old statement, it's, it's cliche. But it's true. You know, Jesus Christ rode, rose from the dead. I've got to be able to get up out of bed and get there. <laughs> you know? <laughs> if he can rise from the dead, I can get out of bed to be here. So the resurrection marks the beginning of his lordship over the church. Again, I'm preaching the choir there, I know. But maybe we can pass the message along, right? <laughs> the resurrection also forever seals the doom of Satan. Now, this, is, this is great news. Satan is bound for eternity because of Jesus, or soon will be. Jesus came to earth to be the sacrifice to undo the damage that sin had done to, to bring us to Christ and, and to bring us back into full relationship with God. That was severed before Christ's crucifixion on the cross. Jesus lived a perfect life and he became flesh and blood so he could do this. Hebrews 2.14 says, Since the children have flesh and blood, that's us, God's children, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds power over death. That is the devil. Why does Satan have power over death? Because Adam and Eve, when they sinned in the garden, gave him that authority. Again, God gave that 
to us to be obedient. And when we are not obedient in our lives, Satan gains control. That's why we continually need the Holy Spirit to live inside of us and to confess our sins so that Satan won't get a foothold in our life and overpower us. Because Satan is powerful. It's just that God's more powerful than he. But it's because of the resurrection that we know what will happen to Satan in the future. Revelation 20 verse 10 says, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So they will face eternal turmoil, eternal torture, eternal torment. Satan, future, Satan's future is already spelled out. And so, you know, because of the resurrection, that was made possible. And finally, looking into the future, we are reminded one last thing that we need to know about what the resurrection brings. And this has to do with us. And it's great. The resurrection of Jesus Christ also reminds believers of his imminent return. And it warns the sinner of coming judgment. That day of judgment that will come. Last verse today we look at is Acts 17.31. Prior to that, uh, 17.30 talks about uh, that there is no ignorance. It's not an excuse any longer. And that we need to repent before God. And this is the reason why. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man whom he appointed. Remember the verse we read earlier that said that Jesus was able to judge the living and the dead? Man has been appointed, Jesus, the Christ. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. There it is. Proof that Jesus was that man through the raising of the dead. So if we believe Jesus promised that he would return from the grave and see that he did that, and he's given us another promise that he will return and those who are faithful will go to him into heaven for all eternity and live with him, then do you not think that that won't come true too? Yes, it will. He has never not fulfilled a promise. And so we look forward to that day when he comes and returns. Here on earth be it us who believe. And so it gives us another cause of celebration for what Easter and the resurrection is all about. And it encourages us to live for the will of God and not be uh, under the control of Satan because of the sin that we continue to live in. Helps us to want to deal with that sin and get it out of our life. And as we talked about today, uh, it, it, if we get into God's word and we study and we know that Christ is returning and we live a life for him, we'll do away with that tunnel vision and we'll begin looking even beyond that into the peripheral and see what, it all, what all God has in store for us. And we'll deeply 
study the word of God and be in it. And we must not forget that there is another part of that, that yes, we are going to go to heaven, but that there is also a judgment day coming for sinners. And you're around them every day of your life. And I'm around them every day of my life. And so I've got to do my best to say, hey, there's a judgment day coming. In a kind way. And nobody's going to listen to somebody that's, that's beating them over the head with the Bible. You know, if, if your neighbor's house was on fire, would you go knock on the door and let them know that? Help save them? Then why, why won't we go to them and talk to them about Jesus and let them know that he is returning and that they need to know Jesus and that they need his salvation and take that gospel message to them. After all, someone took the time and the effort to do that to us. So as we come to the end of the day, let's increase that, that range of vision that we have spiritually and see the full scope of, of God's plan and get to know God on this deeper level. Grow deeper in a relationship with Him and be prepared for the time when Christ returns. Be it today or be it years to come. Let's be ready. Let's be prepared. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity today to look at your word and to see what it means, not just for us, but for the world, for all of creation, that Jesus rose from the dead. And it's exciting to see all that is awaiting us and the promises in your word. Father, help us to, to go forward from here and walk in your ways, to keep in step with your Holy Spirit. This is our prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen.